The headlines are screaming at us. Schools are failing. But are they? Last season, we tried to figure out what made a school good by looking deeply at just one example, that of an unquestionably bad school that became, by all reports, good. This season, we come at this question by looking at the apparent controversies surrounding schools in America to see what sense we can make of them. Bailey taught us where to look for the markers of schools that are good, taught us to attend to what takes care of teachers so they can take care of students and grow together, and attending as well to the shared responsibility and rich relation. It turns out that what's wrong with schools is not the teachers or the learners, but a policy-level failure to create the conditions in which education can flourish. What are those conditions? Glad you asked. I'm Barb Stengel, the host of Chasing Bailey. Stay with us this season as educators from Bailey and beyond speak out. Welcome back. The headlines are still screaming at us, but those headlines are not written by teachers and principals. As we saw in the last episode, most media headlines simply don't reflect the experience or concerns of those I consider actual educational experts. Teachers' concerns more often show up as memes and messages on Instagram or Facebook. One of my guests for this episode, Camilla Modisett, mentioned this well-known example in our interview. If we could just, you know, it's just so stupid. It's back to that, um, you know, the bumper sticker of like, or whatever, may the Department of Defense hold a big sale and schools like have all the money they need. My current favorite meme goes like this. Reading a book with gay characters will not make you gay any more than reading a book about Einstein will make you a genius. If you're afraid that books might change someone's thinking, you're not afraid of books. You're afraid of thinking. And by the way, principles pressing concerns are too often hidden entirely because they operate in a netherland between policy and practice. Those who study principles capture their thinking in the aggregate and abstract rather than in the concrete and personally concerning. There's a lesson in that about the gap between research and practice, but I digress. So I started out thinking about autonomy, maybe prompted by what Lindsay Nelson said in the last episode about being encouraged at Bailey to do whatever it took to grow kids. When I found several headlines recently that directly addressed autonomy, I knew it was time to take a look especially since autonomy for students, teachers, teacher leaders, and building leaders was a determining quality underlying success at Bailey. And here's what I realized. As you'll hear in the next 45 minutes, an episode that started out being centered on autonomy turns out to be about trust and responsibility. Let's get back to those headlines. And the truth is, they're a little confusing. From Chalkbeat in August, Chicago public schools run by principals given more independence saw better student achievement. 
This headline fronted a research report of a study from educational economist Bo Jackson at Northwestern in Chicago. The title of his study, this is not a headline, is When Does School Autonomy Improve Student Outcomes? Jackson highlights the benefits of decentralization in public education, focusing on a Chicago policy that granted school principals more control over budgeting and operations. Now, the study is complex and the results qualified. I urge you to read it. You can find the study in the resources document on our Chasing Bailey website. But a simplistic take is that if you give proven principals autonomy, you will get outcomes for students worth about $1,000 per child at no cost whatsoever. Especially impressive is that schools with atypical student populations benefit more from autonomy. Kids are better cared for. And oh, by the way, principals stick around and school climate improves. Once again, shades of Bailey. So I dug around a little and found these headlines out of Denver in March of 2022 from KUSA Channel 9. DPS Board Approves Proposal Limiting Innovation Schools Autonomy. There was a similar but more revealing headline in Chalkbeat Denver around the same time. Denver Board Votes to Limit School Autonomy Bolster Teacher Job Protections. Hmm. So the teachers don't like autonomy? Or the teachers' union doesn't want schools and principals to have the freedom to waive provisions of the contract, even if the majority of the teachers on site agree. Sounds to me like somebody doesn't trust principals. Maybe understandable, certainly a problem, and definitely not unknown. Remember last episode when I commented on the principal's apparent optimism and the teacher's obvious frustration. There are at least two ironies here. The first is that the Chalkbeat article about limitations was written by Melanie Asmar in March of 2022. The same Melanie Asmar who wrote in 2016 that Denver public schools want to give more autonomy to more schools through expanding innovation zone experiment. No wonder educators complain about the pendulum swing in educational policy. Even more ironic is that the Center for Education Policy Analysis at CU Denver published research seven months later headlined in this way. New research shows choice, autonomy, and accountability improved outcomes for all Denver students. So Denver is limiting autonomy at the same time that research studies in Denver and in Chicago are demonstrating pretty clear evidence in favor of supporting educators in exercising reasonable judgment on the ground. Regular listeners of Chasing Bailey might remember that Dr. Christian Sawyer relocated to Denver, where he was a middle school principal and is now a director of schools, meaning that he supervises and supports a cohort of principals. I asked Christian to connect me with principals in Denver Public Schools so we could talk about how autonomy figured in their work 
and he did. These three schooled me on just what autonomy can mean for school leaders. Merida Fraguada is the principal of Marama Elementary School, where she has spent a good part of her career. I have been a principal, assistant principal and principal in this building over 20 years. Okay. So that alone, the experience alone, give you a different, uh, I would say, parameters to really work with the district. I have been seeing the district being managed by different administrations. Yes. 20 years. I have different uh, supervisors. I have uh, different, I would say, strategies from the district on priorities. They always have priorities. And when you really look at all these things, more than things, the priorities are the same. They just say it differently or uh, prioritize it differently based on, and I know there is different forces mm -hmm. that really mm -hmm. put pressure on district. My personal experience on why I have, let's say to a level I have been very successful as a principal mm -hmm. is because number one, I feel that I have a good balance between school expectations, my school expectation as a leader, as a principal, and also district expect expectations. So I always try to have that harmony between the two pieces where uh, I have learned to definitely have autonomy and and just to let you know i am i'm a fan of autonomy <laughs> i think autonomy give people uh empower us as professionals and i also think that the reason i have a great team that supports my work is because i know how to empower other professionals and close to me to be uh have that autonomy of being professionals and, mm -hmm. and, and initiate and, and complete uh, definitely but under my guidance and vision, but not necessarily, I don't need to design the steps. Mm -hmm. So that said, I feel that the, with the district, I have been able to do that. Um, I always think compliance of what are the expectations, but it's not a compliance that is, I feel is forced. I think it's uh, a compliance that I can navigate to the level that I still can do things my way in the school. But it has been many years in adapting and evolving. Mm -hmm. um, I, I was thinking last night about my time with you. And one thing that I feel is, it's just, we need to evolve and adapt. Every single year is different. We, it has things in common, but you always have to walk into the year with a different perspective of, what is needed and it's not by choice sometimes it's just many variables that play that role population teacher experiences mobility of teachers mobility of students mm -hmm. the district what the district is asking for mm -hmm. so i will say that my autonomy is has always been i will say um supported by adaptability and evolving mm -hmm not being rigid with my own thinking mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because then you lose perspective of mm -hmm. accomplishing and, and going back into having that balance. Before I talked with Merida, Christian told me that he had rarely encountered a principal who was so good at navigating district policies and politics and expectations. And we hear why and what she had to say about autonomy. 
Professionalism and empowerment, yes, but also balance and compliance, though not forced compliance, as she puts it. Alex Wenzel is still learning the delicate balance that Merida described. She came to be principal at Denver Center for International Studies during COVID and found her school labeled turnaround status for low test scores. DCIS is a designated innovation school with a particular curricular focus in the DPS portfolio, an important point to keep in mind. She and her team have righted the test score drop, but are now feeling the effects of a post-COVID administrative clampdown of the kind hinted at in the headlines I quoted earlier. And it's chafing some, especially in light of the expectations of those in schools labeled innovation. So I'm the principal of a preschool through fifth grade elementary school here in Denver. We have um, a unique situation um, in that we're an innovation school. So that means that we're a regular old public school or a neighborhood school. And um, historically the innovation status would grant us certain flexibilities and freedoms. Mm -hmm. I think that the definition of that has changed over the years. So, but, um, and then we also have an international model. So the, the, the big idea is that our mission and vision is aligned to this idea that kids will um, learn how to be critical thinkers in their communities in the world and be problem solvers. Okay. Um, so we do that that tech that in the day to day that means a lot more like field trips and community experiences and partnerships with organizations in the community, overnight field trips even for kindergartners, so they start to get that kind of taste of uh, being outside their comfort wow. zone experiencing new things. Yeah. And so, um, that is that, that's definitely what draws people to work at our school too. Usually they're like real pretty in line with that. Um, and then I think like it could mean, and it doesn't yet mean more things like project-based learning, service-based learning, inquiry-based learning, um, that is not yet, doesn't have a huge support yet in Denver. Um, but, but we, we try to mesh all these things in together with, uh, with a pretty traditional elementary school experience as well. Um, we had dropped to a um, turnaround status with our school, our state mm -hmm. rating, yep. uh, but then COVID hit and everyone just didn't care about any of that for a bit. <laughs> but so I think like we had autonomy mostly because of the COVID-19 pandemic and nobody mm -hmm. really knew how to navigate that. Prior to this, there was just the actually, and I worked in abroad before that, I was uh, an instructional coach and teacher in international schools. And we would often look at what DPS was doing, Denver Public Schools was doing mm -hmm. at schools that worked at far and wide, like in Singapore. Okay. So okay. Uh, I really was attracted to this district because of innovation, because they seemed to be willing to put their money where their mouth was, because they were talking about bold changes for kids and systems with a lot of autonomy, I thought, and innovation built into that. Um, but, you know, superintendent changes, leadership changes, different visions have shifted it. And that there's definitely not any appetite for innovation right now. Alex is struggling to make sense of the district mandates in the light of her responsibility to deliver an international school for kids and parents. And I think the idea is like, if we just 
all focus on these couple things and we all tighten up these things, then we'll see the results our kids deserve. But like the day-to-day reality is that our schools are so diverse. Um, and we have like 220 schools of all different demographics mm-hmm. and missions and visions. Um, and so the, it takes away a bunch of things. I mean, your article on autonomy to start, but um, mm-hmm. it also takes away like parent choice. Um, parents are pretty much getting the same experience, uh, which they don't really, some some of them don't really like. And they're, so when we have these innovation schools in name only, it doesn't create yeah. a lot of, yeah, I don't know, choice in terms of, the type types of schools different families might want for their kiddos. Principal Wenzel sounds a bit like Barb Smentek did in the last episode, acknowledging the good intentions behind district guidance while experiencing frustration at the juggling act she's tasked with, expressing what happens when autonomy feels absent. Like I get into the school year and maybe I have an inkling of where the, the district might want me to mm-hmm. it in May, but I get into the school year and then I really just kind of feel like a pressure come down with all the things that have been decided higher up than me without my input. So uh, like they'll, the, here's the system, like they're just putting on layers of systems with really like well-intentioned mm-hmm. reasons. Right. We are going to highly monitor student progress. We're going to make sure all students, regardless of race, socioeconomic status, all these other factors are um, are are not going to lose the opportunities that they deserve in life. All these are great. This is fantastic. But what it comes down to at the end of the day is like I have to now riddle the system I built with the system being put on me. And that is a whole entire job. <laughs> it's like an yeah. incredible time yeah. consuming. It's incredibly time consuming and creative to figure out how I'm going to fit these two together without just crumbling what I'm doing or losing the integrity of what I'm doing. Um, And inevitably it happens. Inevitably the integrity of what I'm doing is lost. The focus of what I'm doing is lost just a little bit or a lot of it, depending um, just because I have to riddle it with another system. And depending on like the direct supervisor I've had, and I've had four, four and a half supervisors. Okay. Yeah. So I've had a different supervisor every year or multiple sometimes because of high turnover, which is typical and accelerated due to COVID. Um, And so now I'm riddling with a new personality and a new take on what that Mm -hmm. that is Mm -hmm. every time. Um, So it's just like a lot to like navigate. So I guess to kind of like get to that, I I think philosophically, the approach would be like a trust-based approach. The approach would like trust that the leader and the teacher and therefore the students have it within them and have the skills and wisdom within them to be able to like rise to the bar and be more like a a meta and cognitive coaching approach for Mm -hmm. a leader. Mm -hmm. They actually feel like they have thought partnership on. They actually feel like um, that, you know, that the ways they're coming about it um, could be refined and could be supported, but are ultimately like don't need to be kind of like pushed aside because what ends up happening is like all of a sudden everything's important and that can't be the case every year in a school. You need to be really focused. Less is more, less is more, less is more. But now it's just like, I have these things that I thought less was more with, but now I have to also do your things. So just kind of like, um, it dilutes it all. Merida Fraguada has crafted a modicum of autonomy in her traditional public school. Alex Wenzel is still searching out the sweet spot between her innovation mandate and district-wide priorities. 
It was my third interviewee, Camilla Modisett, who is not a principal, but offered a really sharp analysis of what autonomy amounts to, not only for school leaders, but also for teachers and students. Camilla was an attorney before deciding to co-found a dual language immersion charter school in DPS. She has worn many hats and is now the Director of External Relations for Denver Language School, a large and successful K-8 school of choice. I think of autonomy as, I think of autonomy as three things. I think of it as freedom, power, and responsibility. And I think that in order for us to be able to educate our students and children in a way that's truly meaningful and impactful, we need that freedom and they need the freedom, right? They need to be able to, I believe in school choice, right? Like I think they need to be able to choose like what is the best model for me or what is the best model for my student? But I think when you're talking about those different educational models, you need to be able to say, um, what is our freedom? Like, what do we think, what do we want to deliver to our community? What do we feel like our community would like? What is best responsive to our community? Um, what is our power to deliver that, right? Like where, what is our ability, like our power to deliver that? And then the responsibility, like the accountability to deliver that thing that you say that you're going to deliver to your community in collaboration with your community. Mm -hmm. That to me is what autonomy feels like. Mm -hmm. You know, and I it's think not, go ahead. Well, I was oh, going to no. say, it's not, um, you know, it's not less of a weight. It's more of a weight, but it doesn't feel like a shackle. That's the right. difference. It doesn't yeah. feel like it's coming from outside. Yeah. And I think, I mean, you really do, you know, I think it's interesting. That's what I was going to allude to is I do think people sometimes con confuse like autonomy with no accountability or um, no assessment or anything like that. And one of the reasons that Denver Language School was always like one of the reasons we participated in the Harvard PELP summer program and things like that with DPS is because DPS is our authorizer. And we're very committed to being accountable to DPS. That's important to us, right? Like we really feel like this is what we said we would deliver on and we have to deliver on this and we do. So I think accountability is a very important part of the equation, but like you have to welcome it. You have to be excited about it. You also have to understand that like sometimes you fall short of your goals. That's okay too. Mm -hmm. um, but I really think that people think like, oh, well, if there's autonomy, there's no accountability, which is absolutely just nonsense. Camilla has some advice for Alex, but she does admit that being a charter school builds in a level of autonomy that an innovation school simply doesn't have. Perhaps because Camilla's school actually has a charter and Alex's school simply has a brand. My thing with Denver Language School is I'm really like, I'm like, keep your head down and focus on your own school, right? right. Like, I'm right. always like, don't pay attention to the noise around you. Keep your head down and do the good work that you're here to do. So um, even though we do have a great relationship with the district and stuff, we really talk about the politics, like we really try and stay out of the politics of it all, because it's like, we're just, we really just want to provide the best possible education to students. And we're not interested in the politics, which sometimes works to our advantage and sometimes doesn't to be, you know, really right. totally honest. In that way, we very much feel like we're a public school. Like we serve all students. We're committed to like, you know, 
um, operating as a public school. Now, in the ways of like listening to um, other people talk about all of the um, cohorts that they belong to and the accountability and all these meetings that they have, and I'm like, oh, we don't have any of them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, we don't get in, you know, we don't have all that sort of like extra layer of stuff that other schools do have. Camilla came back over and over to the impact that teacher and leader autonomy had on the well-being of students. With autonomy, you do have the freedom, like, you know, at Denver Language School, we have, you know, they have all those ratios of like, well, if you have this population, then you need this many student support, you know, this many people on your student support team and, you know, this many minutes and blah, blah, blah. And we just overstaff on our student support team, right? Because we're like, this is a priority area for us. So yeah. we overstaff in certain areas because we know that even if we're in, you know, ratio or whatever you want to call it, um, you like, I really think that, you know, some people will say like, oh, there's so many people who aren't teachers, right? And it's like, it takes a lot of people to run a school really well. It just does, you know, kids have, kids have a lot of needs. I pushed Camilla on how the autonomy to overstaff on support personnel might assist teachers with individual students who, as she put it, lose their minds in classrooms, forcing the teacher to leave other kids to work with a single child in need. Well, and also the important thing is not just those kids that you leave in the classroom, but like that's a critical, the other thing I think about all the time is like, that's a critical moment for that child who's losing their mind, right? Yes. Like yes. that's a critical moment for that child will be probably a core memory for them in some way. Right. Yeah. And I also think like kids, you know, and I, again, I'm not a teacher in a classroom dealing with behavior, but um, I have my own kids. I've spent 16 years in schools. Kids only act out when a need isn't being met. And right. if right. you can't meet their, if you can't meet their need, that's okay. Like that sometimes happens. You, but first you have to figure out what that need is and can you meet it? Right. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like, I just feel like that's another reason to have so many really educated, smart people working in a building is because those kids who really act out, like, how do we best, how do we truly best support them, right? We're not just trying to get them through the system. We're really trying to give them their best experience. Camilla summed up her views on autonomy this way. Answer, But I do, I do show up here as like an advocate for the, um, for the ability for principals and teachers to have autonomy within their buildings and to make choices that they know in their deep expertise will work best for their students. And then the other thing I think that yields very quickly is if they don't have that deep expertise or they don't have the ability to make that work with that autonomy, because back to what you said earlier earlier in the conversation, that with autonomy comes more responsibility, mm -hmm. then the, I think those people leave pretty quickly. Yeah. And those, you know, like, you want the people in those positions who are willing to make the hard decisions and stand behind them and see how they and and pay attention to the data and do the work and see how it turns out and all of that good stuff in service to the students. So I just think that there's a there's a lot to be done in education around autonomy and what does that look like and that hopefully it will attract the the really the people who are willing to do that work. As I was talking with and listening to these committed educators, 
I heard them say that autonomy has to go hand in hand with trust and responsibility. If we create the conditions for trust and responsibility, conditions that take time, experience, and adequate staffing, then and only then will there be the autonomy educators must have to meet the needs of students. It helps to have a very clear sense of what you are doing and why, and partners in what you're doing. Educators learn to trust each other by working together to enact a shared vision. It's that shared commitment that grounds our capacity to respond, to be creative in complex and changing circumstances. Principal Fraguada spoke eloquently about all this. They're non-negotiables. And I think you, when you, if you're going to do this job for a period of time, you have to just be strong on what you believe. The vision cannot change too much. It can adapt, but really you have to be strong about, uh, I always tell my teachers that I had two grandchildren and mm -hmm. I said to them, if I want every child that comes into Marama to be treated the same way my children will be treated if they come into my school. Mm -hmm. So that expectation of the best that you can offer, I feel that that's something that we know. And I know that that guides my, my practice, what I do. So, but attached to that is that flexibility of adapting and thinking about what is working. Sometimes it's not that much what is not working, but basically what can we do to meet the expectations of the school year? Um, we're very visionary in what we do. We're always kind of thinking ahead of time. It's like, I'm, I'm, I'm a leader that I always think about the worst, what's going to happen next. I always prepare. <laughs> like, it's like, okay, this has happened today, but let's, and I'm, I'm a little more aggressive, hopefully in a positive way, in solving <laughs> problems that are, has not arrived yet, but we're ready for that. So mm -hmm. I feel that because I had that sense of uh, accomplishment, what, what can we do to, avoid these, then the district has been leaving me alone in many aspects to have autonomy. There are so many opportunities to make it do it wrong. Mm, mm, mm. There's right. so many opportunities there. It's like walking on a, a, a mine uh, ground. field, yes. Yeah, yes. so it can happen if you don't have people that you trust. And one thing that I, I, an effective principal needs to do is if in doubt, you ask. You have to have the autonomy, but you're always going to be having, because, uh, well, in their own language, is you need to be covering your back. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. something can go wrong just for something very simple that can create a complete, um, I will say disaster in a school. It could be something very simple with a student, with a parent. Um, now we are so in constraint with, even now, uh, I just took a training today about uh, cyber uh, uh, technology mm -hmm. and what to do, mm -hmm. what not to do. So we, we have to be very careful what we do. But if you have a team also, let's say Christian is my supervisor right now. This is the first year that he works with me. And my first thing, uh, my first goal with him was, let's create trust. I need to be, because he's my liaison between myself as a leader, my school and the district. So I need that person in the middle that I can bounce ideas, mm -hmm. that I can bounce. Mm -hmm. I have autonomy, 
but I need this other person to tell me I am on track. Mm-hmm. Even mm-hmm. as an experienced principal, I need that. You limit yourself of being creative. All three of these school leaders talked about accountability, a political buzzword that has, in my opinion, distorted the very possibility of actually educating youngsters. But they talked about accountability in terms of their capacity to enact autonomy, that is, to act in relation and trust with other educators. This is how Merida put it. We all want to be successful in what we do. We all want to feel the, the, the pride yeah. of, yes, you hold me accountable and I'm going to show you. And it's, and I know that it could be, a, it's, it's a heavy word. It's, it's heavy. Accountability is heavy, you know, it's yeah. a heavy term. Uh, but I feel that, it, yes, hold me accountable because I, I believe in you. Mm-hmm. I we believe in each other. We know we can do it together. And of course, to that the, that term you you put the is teamwork. We're here mm-hmm. together. Like yesterday, we were talking, and I said we're like an avatar. The movie. <laughs> I don't know that just came up. Yes. <laughs> like, okay. We are all connected. If one of us is not successful, the other one will not be. So these are kind of abilities based on connections and support. And there's no question that the same autonomy that school leaders need applies to teachers as well. I believe in autonomy in the classroom and and basically uh, teachers are their bosses in their own classrooms. They are Mm -hmm. the one that the the leaders in their own classroom. I don't think nobody operates from the genuity to be a professional if you don't have autonomy. Mm-hmm. You, um, I don't believe that you can follow everybody's footprints in a sense that you're always going to be a copycat. Every year is different. Every month is different. Yeah. We all know about October and September, how mm-hmm. heavy it is and how, we, because we are creating systems and putting systems in place. Like I told my staff yesterday, now is implementation. Mm-hmm. Go for it. Teach. Uh, this is the now yeah, it's time to teach yeah. enough for that yes we're going to keep talking about the data and accumulating data in trackers we're going to be doing all that go ahead and teach because mm. that's what i need to see that's the empowerment that's the autonomy that we're talking about yes and i feel that um let's say with christian right now as representing the district he's giving me that room to breathe with that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um but i want to see teachers teaching do what they know best mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. we go mm-hmm. from there when it's areas of growth. But that's the other component of trust. At some yeah. point, you need to yes. trust that the people you hire will do the job. And you have to let go and step back. Mm-hmm. Because I don't want, I don't like to live in a, in a sense of anxiety. Like who's doing, you know, we will figure it out the ones mm-hmm. that need support. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But in, it's time to teach. Let them be teachers and, uh, and feel empowered. I was delighted to hear these school leaders declare their support for teachers' autonomy, especially in light of research, more headlines, that demonstrate that teacher autonomy has actually been on the decline for nearly two decades. I have a 2016 headline from a National Education Association publication that declares, Teacher Autonomy Declined Over Past Decade, New Data Shows. This is despite the fact that studies, especially those of Richard Ingersoll at Penn, have repeatedly shown that classroom autonomy is a major factor in determining level of job satisfaction. And a big deal today 
teacher retention. I'm quoting Ingersoll here. The data consistently show us that a big issue is how much voice, how much say, do teachers have collectively in the school-wide decisions that affect their jobs. He goes on, teachers are micromanaged. They have been saying for a long time that one size doesn't fit all. All students are different, but they're told to stick to the scripted curriculum, which might work for a weaker teacher, but it drives good teachers nuts. Maybe the fact that teachers are fleeing the classroom in significant numbers will finally convince both leaders and policymakers that teacher voice is indispensable. Just weeks ago, Elizabeth Hubeck published a piece in Education Week with this headline, Teacher Autonomy Isn't Dead, Here's How to Achieve It. Hubeck offered the example of Virginia's Prince Edward County School District, where 10% of all the teachers resigned, with 25% of them suggesting that a lack of autonomy in instructional decisions and or classroom management was their primary reason for getting out of the district and or the profession. We've always known, and we saw it at Bailey, that teachers with greater levels of autonomy in school and classroom decisions report higher levels of job satisfaction. What does autonomy look like in the good school? Think about Keisha Harding in our last episode describing the experience of autonomy and the joy she felt as she talked about Bailey and models for post-pandemic changes. Or of Lindsay Nelson talking about the go-for-broke level of effort that came with the freedom to make decisions. Listen to Bailey Chief Culture Officer Claire Jasper Crafter describe how accountability can feel good when you control your own destiny. It never felt hard. It was difficult work, but yes. it never felt hard. And, and, and it was the highest level of accountability I have ever worked under in a school. And I loved every bit of it. It, it was accountability that feels like accountability should. It felt good. You know, I go into some high level meetings around data and money now. And I'm like, this is nothing compared to the regular weekly meetings we had at Bailey with just us. Mm -hmm. So that when others came in to meet with us about accountability, we're like, you know, this is in there. Yeah. Don't, been there, done that. This is business as yeah. usual for us. This yeah, is how we do, do business. That. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Great. And it felt good. And here, teacher leader Karen Doris talk about Principal Sawyer and how he enabled autonomy. That's another word I would use to describe Sawyer. Um, not only did he trust his teachers, but he empowered them, right? He empowered them to take chances, to, um, to truly let us make, you know, decisions for the school. Um, so there again, you feel like a professional. And finally, listen as Bailey teacher resident Laura Lofman describes a kind of instructional creativity that too many teachers feel they simply don't have. We really got to use teaching and let it be the art form that I think personally it is. We could take, uh, you know, a topic that came up 
you know, in, in the real world. And we could make it a teaching moment. We could lean into it. We could, and conversely, you know, if the topic came up like in the kid's neighborhood, you know, that which it did, I remember, and I can't remember what the specific situation was, but I remember that morning, something really heavy had happened in the kid's neighborhood or maybe that night, right? The night before. And I remember, I think we were all like sitting on our desks for some reason, but um, I remember with that first block of kids, we just like, we might've scrapped the whole lesson, but we took the time to talk about it because it was that important. Or I also remember there was a time where um, one of our students, I think there was a fight you know, and the student was removed and to court, we, we had that restorative conversation as a class and we had the time to, we had the time or we made the time to take the time to talk about the things that mattered, you know, I mean, because yeah, cool. Let's teach this Tennessee state standard. But if our scholars are thinking about what they experienced last night or what they just saw, it doesn't matter how awesome of a lesson we have. They're not going to be ready to receive any of it. So it it felt really great that we had the ability to, to do what we needed to do to meet the needs of our kids, which I know any administrator now would say, oh, yeah, we do that. But I feel like when push comes to shove, like that's not, that's not what happens. That's not what they they always want. And I knew that we could do it because the leadership and the direction that we had was building scholars, leaders, not just today, but for the future. And we need our, we need our young adults to be whole, whole individuals that all of their needs are taken care of. All their needs, academic, emotional, psychological, physical, were taken care of. That's what educators do. And that's the purpose autonomy serves. Isn't it about time we center autonomy and the trust and responsibility it demands in our policymaking and district administration? You already know what I think. And by the way, if you haven't listened to the first season of Chasing Bailey, go back and do that now. You'll understand the difference autonomy makes for everybody in the building. It's obvious that autonomy does not negate accountability as Camilla Modisette insists, nor does it allow stagnation as Mary de Fraguada tells us. Quite the contrary, autonomy powers and requires constant growth learning anew what the fitting response is to this situation, to this new challenge. That's true for students and leaders, but especially for teachers. And that's where we're headed next episode, to how teachers learn in and through their practice. Alex Wenzel describes how the folks at DCIS think about teachers' professional development in ways that set this conversation up nicely. We try to be really responsive to what they say they need. Um, 
And one of those things includes like, they really want to learn in community. They Mm want to be in each other's classrooms. They want to watch videos of each other. They really value that colleague to colleague relationship. So we try to harness that and build that like within the constraints that we're given. So we need to have these data and planning weekly meetings, but we try to make it really meaningful around the things they said they want to work on. And we agree. Mm -hmm. And we provide basically the learning community. So we're trying to basically make learning, build learning communities up in a way that feels more authentic than it has in the past with template driven planning times and that type of thing. Mm -hmm. Trying to strike that balance. And every single time we get feedback from them, like, was this useful? And just keep refining our process so that we're just facilitators of learning rather than the keepers of all knowledge. Alex is challenging standard programming for Teachers PD in those comments, and we are going to as well. Join us next time as we think about how it is that one learns and grows as a teacher, and why most professional development simply doesn't reflect that. Hi folks, it's Barb with an ask. If you are a regular Chasing Bailey listener, please be sure to leave a review and spread the word among the educators, parents, and policymakers you know. If you're just tuning in, please subscribe to the podcast so that we'll know we are getting the word out. And if you have any questions or suggestions, we want to hear from you. Email us at chasingbaileypod at gmail.com. Together, we can spread the word that the path toward our best educational efforts and the best education system we can craft runs through the attention we pay to educators.